Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WET, from Portland State University Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the Health Promotion Suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for a non-traditional campus. My name is Bella, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Josh, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And my name is Quinn. My pronouns are he, him, his. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be your hosts for this podcast. Let's get into it. Hello, listeners. It's me, Quinn Westland, he, him, his. Uh, again, here to bring you another psychology-centered episode, joined by my favorite fellow psych nerd. Um, as many of you probably know, I'm an undergrad psychology major here at PSU. The topic of today's episode, existential psychology, wasn't a lens I was familiar with until I was well into my explorations of the field, but I found it to be incredibly insightful and powerful. As someone who has made it a life goal to become a therapist myself, I'm always deeply invested in learning as much as I can about approaches that could be used um, for my own self-development um, while also trying to cultivate knowledge of the approach to utilize it in the future as a framework while working with clients once I've completed grad school. Hey, y'all. I'm the favorite fellow psych nerd. My name is Logan Allen. I use she, they pronouns. I'm an undergrad senior psychology and social sciences double major. Existential psychology, history, and theoretical perspective has been one of my favorite areas to study in psychology ever since my high school AP psych class. I hope to apply knowledge gained from this perspective from this perspective <laughs> to my future work as a school counselor for the development of youth self-empowerment. Now we're going to jump on into the episode. Thank you once again to the founder and former president of Existential Humanistic Northwest, Bob Edelstein, for joining us today. Today we have the privilege of inviting Bob Edelstein, the, the founder and former president of Existential Humanistic Northwest onto our podcast. How are you doing, Bob? Great. Thank you for inviting me. As, as I mentioned before, I feel honored uh, they invited me and I'm passionate about this, uh, the existential human perspective. So I'm, I'm glad I'll be, get to talk about it in this podcast. We're excited to have your expertise today for sure. Um, I know that when I first sent off that message to Existential Humanistic Northwest, um, I was so excited to see who they were going to bring. And then when you're like, hi, I actually happen to be the founder and the former president. I was like, oh my goodness, just absolutely starstruck. Um, so I think not all of our listeners are going to be psychology majors. They might not really know a lot about mental health. So I think that we should start off with a really broad and basic question, which is what is existential psychology? How does that, how is it different from existential philosophy? Um, who are the people involved historically? Who are the founders? Yeah. Okay, that's great. And as an aside, after I do that, or at some point, I, I can also talk to, say the same thing about the humanistic philosophers and psychologists, and then look at how, why I look at that as important in terms of existential hyphen humanistic, which is a, a specifically uh, the United States. Uh, that's the key uh, format in terms of existentialistic psychotherapy in our country, whereas uh, uh, where in other countries, and we're gonna have a conference in HNW with the four major existential psychotherapy modalities of uh, around the world. And so existentialistic is the one in this country where there's different ones in other countries. So that's why I wanna talk about all three existential humanistic and existential humanistic, you know. Uh, but existential, uh, 
psycho basically uh, the existential uh, uh, psychotherapies and psychology, it's an application of existential philosophy. So it's moving the philosophy into uh, how I am with people, how I apply it in the world. Uh, in terms of the existential philosophy part um, is uh, the definition would be um, how we deal with the exploration of being, how we deal with existence. That the central fact, the central tenet of all that what we deal with is that we exist. We're here, we exist. And, and, and then, and also, uh, how do we make meaning out of our existence? Because the, uh, the, um, because basically uh, the, the one universal we have is we all share the same human experience. Um, so basically, there's all sorts of ways we can make meaning. We have agency and choice. And uh, so we come from our own subjectivity, from our life experiences, our interpretation of our life experiences, and that changes in and over our lifetime if we allow it to. Um, so, uh, so existential is just dealing with that re re uh, the, um, the uh, reality of that we exist is the point we start with everything. Um, wow, that is some big, big concepts to wrap our minds around. You were asking me about the uh, historical founders of existential philosophy. It would be Soren Kierkegaard in the 1800s, a Danish philosopher who actually, there's all sorts of within existential philosophy, um, you know, a mistake is to think that existentialism is just secular and it's anti-religion or anti-spirituality. That's not true. There's, there's agnostic existentialists, there's uh, athe uh, atheistic and spiritual. And actually Kierkegaard who really brought it to the world, um, in Europe, he's in Europe, he was Danish and he was um, a very, a religious person. Um, and uh, I forget if he was a, a minister or not, but at any rate, he was a religious person, and but his thing, which is part of, is in terms to thine own self be true, basically. I know that's a Shakespeare quote, but he was interested in people not just following the herd, that you know who you are and you, you have the courage to to stand on who you are. Um, and uh, uh, but he so he was the original philosopher, and also dealing with the whole range of human experience. So he wrote on dread and he wrote on uh, uh, um, all, all sorts of difficult, uh, uh, all sorts of difficult feelings, but dread is one that stands out for me. So, um, so he was the original founder, but the other person in the 20th century that's well known as a philosopher is Nietzsche. And, uh, you know, now see, <laughs> Nietzsche, I would say, is uh, an atheistic existentialist, although I'm, I'm not sure totally if he would say that, but one of his famous things is God is dead, you know, but, but also what he meant by that is he move, he's moving it back to one's personal subjectivity. You don't, try, you don't give yourself power over to something that's not you. Um, and uh, so that's what he believed, but he, he's... Uh, and, and again, this, there's a real kind of core thing that goes through all these uh, people, which is one, one, one lens, which is important in my subjectivity is authenticity. 
So they all, which is basically um, uh, being open to all that is it, that flows through your consciousness, you know, and 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 ultimately don't live an image, discovering who you are, and again having the courage to put it out there. But this two, those are two different aspects of it. Um, so uh, Kierkegaard. Um, so those were the two big 19th century founders in philosophy. In the 20th century, the two big philosophers was uh, Sartre and Heidegger. And Sartre's uh, big thing uh, is. He, he said, existence precedes essence. And what that means is uh, existence uh, that basically we're a free flowing consciousness. Besides, uh, we start out with existing. We start out where we're born, you know, and that, uh, and whatever that journey is between birth and death, but in our, how we exist during that time period. But we start out where we exist before we form our identities, before, before we form whatever essence we are. Um, and so that's why existence precedes essence. And so that's why it always goes back to that we exist. And if we look at it that way, then what's to me liberating about that is um, that our identities can shift to identities that we feel are more healthy or optimal or, and rather than we're stuck in our identity and that's the end of the story, which is, a, and so an in-depth existential psychotherapy um, that's what the aim is. That we one looks at that uh, one looks at that identities and how it conflicts with what's going on uh, in the, in who I am in the moment. The identity I had I, again, who I had identified with. Um, so that's Sartre, what he's known, and then Martin Heidegger is the other one, a German philosopher. He's an interesting fellow because he's a person who. Um, he was, from historical accounts, really not a nice man. Um, he he was part of the German Nazi Party for a little bit, and just um, but and he was brilliant in terms of his views and concepts. Again, he wasn't a therapist; he was a philosopher. And so, one of the things that he he so he did a number of things that fit in with existential philosophy, which is uh, um, uh, uh, that one is he called. Uh, uh, and this does move into practice, actually, but uh, he called it Dasein, which means being there, which basically that where uh, we are witnessing um, what, that the, the goal, in a sense, is to be as fully there with the client as you can. And so it's, again, not moving into how I should move them or that this is about you know, say psychodynamic, I need to look at their family of origin, or I need to look at their sexuality, or a behavioral, I need to look at their behavior and work on that, or uh, transpersonal, uh, I need to look at the spiritual or higher consciousness. It's like, let's start with the existence of the human being, let me be with that existence, and then let, let me see where that unfolds in terms of uh, how in my facilitation of them getting to know a deeper knowing of themselves, they will get to where they want to go. So that's be, being in the world on a philosophy that we're all connected. That basically, you know, what he's saying is that you can't separate uh, uh, or it's an illusion to separate that, that we're not connected. I mean, uh, existentially, there's a lot of paradoxes. So also alone, no one can be totally in our skin. But also in, in our culture, we tend to overdo that one and um, you know in my opinion and it's more like yeah but you you cannot not be interconnected so in other words uh 
if I'm afraid, I'm afraid of something. You know, I'm always, my subjective is connected with something out in the world and in, in my experience of it. Um, so uh, being in the world and Dasein are two things that he really brought into the existential philosophy consciousness. In terms of uh, psychotherapists, psychologists, um, that popularized it in the United States, um, there would be two that stand out. Uh, Rollo May is the primary one. He brought, well, well, they're both primary, but Rollo May brought existential psychotherapy for, he's from the United States, but he brought it over to, from Europe to the United States and then started making it what is the United States uh, way of being, uh, of providing existential psychotherapy. And one of the things he said is when working with the human being, when working with someone, the most important thing is I'm with the human being in front of me. It's one human being engaging, dialoguing, facilitating uh, another human being to discover who they are that they don't know about um, or that they're not completely aware of. They recognize themselves. They re you know, recognize themselves in ways they hadn't recognized themselves. Um, and, uh, and he's done other things too, but, uh, that's one thing that he offered, but he's a real, he's a, uh, a real, uh, pioneer. And the other person would be Irv Yalom. And Irv Yalom actually wrote a book called Existential Psychotherapy. Um, and he's written a lot of books. He's a, actually a very good novelist. Um, but, uh, um, and he looks at the givens of existence which basically, and this is one of the ways that the existential part is it, it, it's grounded, I would say, in that it looks at um, uh, um, looks at as, a, as embodied human being, what are our limits? Let's not jump over that. And he says, universally, no matter what culture you're in, uh, that we all deal, and there's different paradigms, but his paradigm is, we deal with four different, it, it cannot be avoided. I guess one can can somehow deny it, but one is really hard to deny, which is um, life and death. You know, in a gloomy way, I could say we're all marching towards our death every day. I could also look at that each moment is a death and a rebirth. I'm not the same now as it will be a moment from you now, even if it's subtle. Um, or if I'm giving this podcast next week, uh, hopefully I won't be on tape and I'll be different. Or even if I think I'm on tape, I'll be different because it's, you cannot not be. Um, is, uh, um, and so that's one. A second uh, universal given of existence is um, the, the tension between um, uh, uh, meaning and absurdity or meaning and meaninglessness. Because the belief is again, we, we, in terms of being a mess of our life, our responsibility is to choose our life. So there's not this just given thing of, or it's a way to escape from freedom, as Eric Fromm would say. It's a way I need to have this totalitarian person. This is one example. It's, I think, part of the phenomenon of Trump being in office, actually. But I want to give up my, my, it's too scary for me to have the courage to be myself or, or I just think I can't, I can't. And um, so basically, how do we make meaning when we're thrown into a world where there's no inherent meaning would be a second one. A third one would be um, fr uh, freedom and responsibility, which basically is 
actually ultimate freedom without any responsibility is incredibly anxiety provoking. We need to be able to respond uh, in order to always, if, I, if I'm have, yeah, and too much responsibility without freedom is, is burdensome. And so basically that's another paradox that we all deal with in, in our deciding our life um, within the context of whatever society we're in. And then the last one would be um, uh, in your Irv Yalom's paradigm in the givens of existence would be relationship and aloneness. And that I was talking about earlier actually, but which would be that we're always alone. No one can die for me. No one can be exactly in my skin, but, uh, and we're always connected. Even if I'm a monk in Tibet, I'm, I haven't, uh, I know that I'm apart from other human beings. So I'm still sharing the human experience. I'm still connected. So, um, so that would be uh, some of the concepts and some of the, um, some of the uh, pioneers in both philosophically and uh, ther therapeutically in terms of the existential part. Well, thank you. That was a super extensive history, but also just for my own studies, I know that you were just glancing off of all that we could go into, honestly. There's so much to be found there. Um, in our university classes, and I can speak to this at least from our clinical psych course that Quinn and I have had together, Victor Frankl is a name that's frequently brought up with existential psychology. And I found it interesting just because there's a huge emphasis on the work that he's done for existential psychology that he wasn't in, you know, the four or five, six folks that you just mentioned. And I'm curious to hear about that. Okay. Um, yeah, like you say, there's so many I can do. So yeah, very true it. also. <laughs> you know, what I did with, you know, I would pick Victor, Fra you know, these inter intertwine uh, psychotherapy is the application of the philosophy. <clears throat> so basically, as I said, philosophically, we're looking for meaning, you know, we're trying to make meaning out of our existence. Um, but I would put Viktor Frankl in the camp of the psychotherapist. And I think when you say that, what I did was do the two American pioneers. You know, remember I was saying there's four different schools. And to put in a plug, uh, the Existential Humanist Northwest Professional Organization is going to have a conference on uh, September 24th, September 25th, and September 26th. And it's called... Uh, um, Four masters, four approaches, uh, an exploration of existential theory, theory and practice. And one of the people we have, we have Emmy Van Dersen, who's the primary uh, exist, uh, what's called, she's from England and um, or Great Britain. Um, and her, her, it's called uh, um, uh, uh, existential. Uh, phenomenological therapy. And mm. then the pioneer for her was R.D. Lang. I mean, it, that started it, but so she's, she's gonna be, um, it's gonna be um, on Zoom. So she'll be taught, she'll be one of the presenters. And then, uh, so that's the English form, the English branch. Um, Eric Craig, he's from the United States, but he's really representing a German branch called Dasein Analysis, um, which, uh, uh, met well, in and Heidegger really was the philosopher as part of that. Um, it's the exploration of being. Um, and uh, but Binswager and Boss were the two, uh, I think they were German, they might have been Austrian, but I think, um, but that were the 
the two pioneers of that one. And so Eric Craig is a, a student of his. Um, and then there's uh, Alfred Langle, who's, who's the protege of, of Viktor Frankl. So he'll be doing it. And his is called Existential Analysis and Logotherapy. And then the American uh, who's gonna represent the United States is Kirk Schneider, uh, a very good friend of mine and colleague um, that is gonna be presenting on existential humanistic and existential integrative therapy. So I'm saying all that because I think one of the things I did, as you were saying, uh, Logan, there's so much that can be covered, you know? And so I think, so I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, Victor Frankl is definitely a, a heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, he's always yeah. the one that professors in university talk about for sure. And so he, he what his story is, and it is, uh, he was 38, he was a psychiatrist, uh, in Austria, and um, and he and he already, I think he had already been thinking about his approach, which is logotherapy is the search for meaning. Basically, it's saying uh, that's the most important thing that drives and motivates people. We all have an inherent drive to find meaning, and not only that, it's essential we find meaning to have a fulfilled life, or sometimes to not even to not kill ourselves. Um, and uh, in it's part of resilience in the most dire circumstances, and and even in terrific circumstances. Uh, well, what is the meaning of this? I have a, I have a five thousand dollar boat, and I'm rich and wealthy. Is that sufficient? You know, maybe for some people it is, and that's their meaning. Or they come to an existential crisis, a crisis in their existence that makes them say, "Oh, you have all this money, but something's missing." I could have I could have died in that car accident, and I reevaluate, and I need to you know I need to let people uh, be more important to me as an example, you know. Um, so uh, um, so, but then what happened was uh, he got put in. Uh, I think it was I'm pretty sure it was Auschwitz in the him and his family, and they got separated. His wife was in a in I believe Auschwitz, but in a different segregated camp. And, uh, and Auschwitz was one of the most deadly, just horrific concentration camps. And so many people got killed. And so Frankel was put to the test of how do I make meaning out of the, you know, perhaps the worst circumstances or up, you know, uh, worst circumstances one can imagine. And so he looked for meaning. And so he survived and I don't know how long he was in it, three years, maybe, I don't, I, I don't remember. But he, uh, um, so he did in a number of ways. One, he kept on envisioning his wife and being with her after the, um, after he, he imagined it would, he, he would get out of it. He wasn't focused on it, he'd be killed and that this would end at some point. So that's ways to make meaning. Um, he also made meaning in terms of saying, then I'm going to be with my wife and it'll be incredible to be united. Then he made meaning by saying, by giving some of his food to, to prisoners that were uh, uh, more depressed or discouraged or hungry than he was. Then he made meaning by, uh, and this I'm not as sure, I think he meant some compassion to the guards, but that could be me making it up. <laughs> and, uh, but the other thing is he thought of this, uh, and again, I think he had started before, but regardless, he said, as a psychiatrist, and I'm going to get back to the world, 
um, this is really deepening or turning me on to how important finding meaning is. It's the centrality of what we need to do to make meaning out of our lives. And certainly, I mean, to live a fulfilled life. And uh, certainly, um, you know, he's coming from his living experience, you know, which is part yeah. of, if we're looking at the exploration of being, um, we need to come, the, ultimately as a psychotherapist, I'm supporting the person to come from their lived experience. And uh, that I, I may, in my engagement with them, I'm going to be myself, but the aim is to not focus on interpreting or to really be a container to let them share with what's going on right now and bracket my judgments and, 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 and it could be brought in at some, you know, and should be brought in at different times, but that, um, so I'm saying that uh, Frankl certainly had the lived experience of what it means. He's not talking from his head. And so he's incredibly respected and uh, logotherapy is all around the world. And, and that's when he started it. And uh, then Alfred Langle kind of expanded to existential analysis too, which I won't go into. So, yeah. yeah. You have been speaking quite a bit about meaning making, about um, with logotherapy, sitting there and really absorbing other people's thoughts, emotions, how they think about the world. And that sounds a lot like a great transition into humanistic psychology to me. And one of the reasons why existential psychology and humanistic psychology work so well together in tandem in the United States. Okay. So humanistic psychology uh, focus on uh, the uh, unique human beings. Uh, they, these overlap certainly, but uh, where existential focuses on uh, existence and uh, that that there's a focus in humanism. One of the one of the focuses on that this that we're all uniquely human, and so basically what that means is um, and uh, and it it's um, is I'm with uh, this human being and not assuming uh, I'm learning about them. I'm I'm learning. It's human centered. You know, that, um, so uh, what my experience and my drive may be, or my desires, um, my, uh, the, the objective life, my uh, uh, range of feelings, my range of perceptions, my bodily sensations, my metaphors that come up, images, uh, intentions that, um, you know, they're going to be different for each person. So it focuses on the human being in front of me and how that applies as a, a humanistic psychologist is that I'm following the thread of who I'm with more than putting them into a theory or not putting them into a theory. And, uh, and, and being open that, you know, what, what this person really needs to explore is their spirituality. What this person really needs to explore, uh, I mean, they're letting me know, so in what's going on. Um, and what the person really needs to explore is, uh, is um, their family of origin. You know, what the person really needs to explore is uh, um, uh, uh, something that has to do with cross-cultural. Um, you know, the, the meaning of cross-cultural, how that impacts them, you know, so, so I'm going with not everyone, that's where it's not theory oriented in that sense. Well, everyone should go to family of origin, everyone should go to or emphasize on anyone. The other thing, and this would be the, the humanistic 
focuses where I said existential focus a lot on limits and you know and and to go back to that uh, the shadow side of existential uh, psychotherapy would be that it can get too gloomy. That's a stereotype sometimes. You're just talking about, oh God, I'm gonna die and all this. Um, and actually the whole point of it is, or the healthy way, oh, no, the, what's intentional and not shadow is that me knowing that I'm gonna die can uh, hopefully make me feel more present and more engaged and more motivated to live the life I wanna live each and every moment. So it's not a negative thing, it's a good thing. But it is, again, it starts out by focusing on the givens of existence and our limits. And it's also in terms of agency and choice, it's very neutrally based. One can choose evil, one can choose good, you know. Uh, humanistic uh, focuses on a lot in, in the other side of it is the in, incredible miraculousness and complexity and, and beauty and subtlety of the human being. And, um, and so it very much looks at actualization, it looks at potential, it looks at uh, um, uh, possibility, you know, that, um, and um, so it's exciting in that way. It basically supports that, uh, I think it was Marianne Williamson, I think it was Nelson Mandela uh, initially actually, and Marianne Williamson uh, kind of also talked about it a lot, but it's more like the, the danger is, is, is that uh, or what keeps us uh, um, trapped is our uh, fear of being too big. You know, we're actually who we are, just magnificent human beings, and we can always move in to this uh, actualization that's waiting for us, this potential that's waiting for us. So, um, uh, and, and so um, the humanistic uh, philosophy is that um, is a very positively valued based that human beings will go move into health and wholeness. And, and, as, and I would say, um, period, but I would say that it's gonna be substantial and this is part of the job of the humanistic psychologist is that I support the client by working with their protections or defenses in ways they've been scared to move into their subjectivity um, or didn't even know what their subjectivity was or whatever, that the reason we protect ourselves is uh, we're doing the best we can or we feel we're doing the best we can. We do get, uh, uh, you know, we're more helpless as a kid growing up. So we do get certainly informed by the different messages consciously or unconsciously we get from our parents or from different events in our life. Uh, but again, they're not set in concrete. Um, that uh, um, so basically, as a psychotherapist, I'm supporting in a holding way, and certainly challenging way sometimes. And but basically, non-shaming, a, a caring, a valuing, a, um, and uh, that the the client sees the defenses, how they protected themselves, and peels it back. And then they can lean into their wounds, face their wounds. And the belief is if I face my wounds, especially with someone witnessing it and being with me in it, um, I will move towards health and wholeness. You know, there's not a, that the choice will come uh, uh, like automatically uh, or uh, uh, seamlessly. Um, so that's the humanistic part. And uh, the people, uh, William James was a philosopher 
Um, that's the philosophy that comes most to mind right now. But in terms of the humanistic psychologists that really um, uh, made it uh, uh, powerful and, and uh, had it emerge in our country were two people. One was Abraham Maslow, who was a theoretician. He, did, he wasn't a practitioner, so I could say he was a philosopher. Um, but he, and they were, both were in, you know, like uh, uh, Abraham Maslow died in 69, I believe. And he was, he was, uh, um, and Carl Rogers died in 86, but also Carl Rogers was, I think they were about the same age. They were born around the same time. And in the early, around 1900. Um, and, uh, um, and so Maslow did a number of things, but basically he looked at how, again, we, if we move into, I'm going to say our authentic selves, we also move to actualization. And that, um, because again, it becomes seamless. So you go back and forth in that dance. Um, and that one of the things he did, he did a hierarchy of needs in terms of this natural progression. And so first, uh, first you need to be able to survive. And then you, you move into, I think, a, a sense of belonging and a sense of esteem, uh, a sense of connection, different ones. And then finally, uh, the, he moves to the highest, uh, the, the pyramid is the being values, which is basically instead of that, yeah, we're in the equation, but that our energy naturally moves to making the world a better place. And so being values is like justice, love, uh, uh, um, order in a good way, uh, um, things like that, kindness. Um, and certainly when I think about it in our present times, um, that's desire and drive. That's one way I would put it. And again, I always say in clients, feel free to disagree with me. So you two can feel free to disagree with me. Um, <laughs> is that... Uh, is I think the Black Lives Matters and some of the other things we're doing, but Black Lives Matters has been so powerful this year that that's part of saying, you know, uh, and supporting people in terms of having a white consciousness um, feel that uh, in terms of being values, I don't want to separation. I wanna eat, uh, level the playing field. So what's saying is rather than I have to go to, I, I do have privilege, but rather than privilege has to be, uh, a way to keep separate. If I'm moving through the hierarchy of needs and moving to being values, I don't want. I'm, I want to use it to make the world a better, more holistic place. So, um, uh, and then Carl Rogers was the theoretician. I uh, was the practitioner, and uh, he he influenced me. I look at him as my psychological granddad, and I can say a little bit about. Oh, that. that's so cute. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you why. But um, in terms of, uh, uh, he was the first person where it was hierarchical before, primarily before he uh, had the courage to make the stands he did, where basically it was, as I say, uh, I would be more like a client comes in and I'd be teaching them or saying, well, you know, facilitating them to go to where I wanted to facilitate them to go or things like that. And Carl Rogers said, no, I want to be client-centered. That's how we started out. One is I want to be non-directive so the client can, can go where they want to go, you know, to support them to move into their experience and feel, yeah, and, and then uh, and feel validated for that. 
then uh, he moved to a client center from non directly called client center, and then ultimately put himself more in the equation called the person center. But he and he, he moved this to not only with clients, which was his main thing, but in international relations, you name it. it he was an amazing human being. And uh, um, he, uh, and basically, this is good for uh, upcoming therapists uh, or therapists, period. And I, I really believe this, that he said in terms of humanistic psychology, that there's three conditions that if you meet them, uh, the person's gonna grow from it, regardless what else you do. And this could be for any therapeutic modality, whether that's the primary you do, or it could be a behaviorist or whatever. But he said, you, you need to have a kind of meta container as being aware of congruent sympathy and unconditional positive regard. An unconditional positive regard is my valuing of the human being and getting that across uh, no matter what their actions are or, you know, that that um, I could even be frustrated at them. But there's a thing of, there's a reason for this. And this human being is inherently worthy. Um, the congru uh, congruence is that I know myself pretty well. And while I'm with the client, I, I'm with my own experience and then express it as, uh, as it feels therapeutically appropriate or don't express it at that point in time in the therapy or maybe never if it's not. Um, and that's important because it's two human beings engaging with each other, which is another person I can talk about who's a philosopher, Martin Buber, who talked about I thou and basically you know, he was really, he's basically saying we have I-it relationships, which is transactional. You ask me to do this podcast, I say yes, it benefits both of us. Um, so I-it is good. I mean, it's, it's needed and it's part of being an embodied human being and it can be very positive. If it's manipulative um, or hidden, that's the shadow side of it and it's not positive. But, and basically Buber's point was, but that it, existence is limited if you don't have an I-thou. And the idea goes back to we're interconnected and it's another way to say unconditional positive regard that we're all sacred, you know? You know, the, uh, I think it's the uh, Hindus have a thing where you like go to each other with your hands by your chest and, and really it, it, what it's saying is the God in me meets the God in you. So it's that, you know, so it's the sacredness to, uh, um, uh, so Buber's another philosopher. So he would be a humanistic philosopher actually. Um, and, uh, and empathy is that I, in my own frame of reference, because we're all on a human journey, that I can identify with what a human being says, even if I haven't had the experience, and I can communicate that to them. So then a person feels seen and heard, which is so much part of the healing. So I totally believe that. And that's how I got into the field. You two are in college. And this is when I, I was an economics major in college. And oh, wow. uh, yeah. And uh, don't ask me about any economics. I don't know a thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and basically this is, um, and this is about being authentic too, because one of the reasons uh, was my folks thought, oh, this would be good. It's practical. So it was like at that age is oh, okay. They think it's best, you know? Right. And, and I think that a lot of students go into college with that kind of pressure behind them. Right. And I didn't know myself and that very well. And then, uh, and so then also I was influenced by outer, uh, outer, um, the outside. 
So it could be friends, it could be the media, it could be professors, it could be whatever. And so I really didn't know myself and I was, uh, you know, it was everything coming at me. And so um, I realized I didn't like economics so much, but I had already majored it. So, so my senior year, I took an elective psychology course. No, an, elect an elective, I took an education course. This is the spring of 1971. And uh, I said, uh, and I read a book called Freedom to Learn by Carl Rogers. And it changed my life around. And this is the humanistic philosophy, another uh, application. But he said two things about uh, what it was about. He said, one is that we are, we can be the, um, uh, the masters of our own lives, which also would be existential philosophy. But basically that at 20, 21, 22, no, 21 was kind of, kind of strange information. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> and then the other thing was to live a full optimal life um, is that the way to be the master of your life is to give a, a central valuing to your internal subjective life and then move it out into the world, um, you know, to, to be in the world in the most gratifying way and helpful way uh, to the world as well as to yourself. So it's in other words, you go from authenticity to actualization. And that started my passion in terms of authenticity, which I still have. Um, and uh, so that's why he was like my psychological, he was my psychological grandfather. And I'll get to my psychological dad very shortly. <laughs> I love that there's like this little lineage that you have in your journey for psychology. I, I hope my dad and granddad are looking at me from wherever they are and I, that I'm uh, doing okay. <laughs> uh, but um, so, uh, so then this was, uh, so then I go on and, you know, move into uh, uh, becoming a beginning therapist in uh, Modesto, California. And uh um, and then I was in between what I, I left that job and wasn't sure what I was going to do. So he was in La Jolla with the, uh, San Diego, California, with the Center for the Studies of the Person. And so uh, I wrote him a personal letter saying how much he meant to me and what he stood, uh, you know, how he's, um, what he meant to me. I was probably, I was in my late 20s. And uh, is there a... A, a way I could work with him in the Center for Studies of the Person. And then uh, I didn't get a response. I, I was a little disappointed, but I, you know, here's, I wasn't really, I would have hoped to get one, but I wasn't expecting one. And right. then a year later, um, I was in San Francisco and was a clinical supervisor and director of the Haight-Ashbury Center for Alcohol Problems. And uh, the clinical consultant there, uh, I, I found out had worked with Carl Rogers, like, uh, you know, so, um, so I said, wow, let me show you this letter. And he looked at it, he said, wow, I'm surprised Carl didn't respond to it. Why don't you send it to him again? So with that encouragement, I did. And then I got a personal letter from him. So that was. Oh my gosh, that's so, <laughs> that's a powerful experience. Was, was, I think so that people really underestimate how much, um, you know, theorist practitioners that come before fledgling therapists or counselors, yeah. those people really matter to us. Um, 
And I mean, that's partially the reason why I was so excited that we got you on this podcast, yeah. right? Like existential humanistic framework and theories are very important to my own psycho- psychology interest journey. Yeah. Um, wow, that's such a cool experience that you had. Yeah, I, I got that from your emails and that, that was, uh, uh, which excited me for both of you and that uh, lineage is important, absolutely. Um, it gives a humility, which is important for one thing. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and so, so that's my psychological grandfather and I can move to existential humanistic and talk about my psychological dad, if you would like. Yeah, please do. Uh, and so existential humanistic is a combination of the things. They're not the same, but to me, they make a whole because basically uh, in terms of exploring existence and being, uh, and being with the kind of limits and then how that can be positive, but still the, embi- the embodied limits of existence and that it's in a focus a lot of on agency um, and choice that uh, that's one part of the equation. But the other part of the equation is looking at the unique human being and the belief that they really go towards health and wholeness. So to me, it makes a beautiful circle, you know, and so um, and that's, again, what has been the United States, the main orientation where they go to, there are people that are just existentialists and there are people that are just humanistic, but I, the, I would say the main one would be existential humanistic, or that, that's my opinion. Um, and uh, Actually, on that note. Yeah. Um, existential hyphen humanistic, because they're not the same. That's why right. it's important. Right. And some people would consider up humanistic hyphen existential, but and I, I like it. Just, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. One other thing, Logan. And the yeah, other thing I like about it is um, you talk about philosophy and also head and heart and all that. Um, to me, the existential is about the head, but not in a bad way. It's a mm. philosophical kind of underpinning, grounding. Uh, and uh, that I know what I'm doing from that perspective. Um, the humanistic is the heart. You know, when I'm just doing unconditional positive regard, uh, you know, um, congruence and empathy, and empathy and unconditional positive regard in particular, that's really coming from the heart. Where right. basically when I'm, but I still have a kind of philosophical idea and desire. And that's why it's not technique oriented because the philosophical uh, of, you know, wanting to support the client to develop their own selves um, and wanting to connect in relationship and, uh, any rate, things like that. So that the other, that's another thing I, that I would put where they go together. But uh, you started saying, Logan, I interrupted you. Oh, yeah, no, it's all good. Um, I was curious to see if you had any scope for this question um, about how widely utilized is existential humanistic or existential hyphen humanistic framework and theoretical perspective in the United States. Um, and I know that you mentioned that you know, there are ways for behavioral technicians to utilize some of these frameworks. There are ways for counselors, therapists, life coaches who get invested in this. Um, yeah. Um, well, existential human, humanistic, to me, one of the reasons I love it, it's, uh, it's a container. It's not anti-anything, well, just about, again, I'm not an absolutist, but it's not. Um, but, uh, and so one is, it's not, in terms of people that just, are existential humanistic practitioners like myself, um, that it's not the mainstream. 
but it's it's more and more. Certainly, the humanistic part has been integrated in so many modalities. The existential part, less so. Um, but uh, but at any rate, it's that in itself is not not uh, in the mainstream. It's not completely out there. It's not like woo or fringe. Not that I'm against woo or fringe, but you know. So um, the uh, um, but in terms of it's also integrated consciously or unconsciously in terms of many modalities. So for instance, uh, uh, I'm. Uh, like part of the existential humanistic, uh, one of the tenets would be that I meet the client where they're at, you know, and then uh, I, I'm parallel to them. And I'm also sometimes ahead of them kind of, you know, nudging in some ways. But the thing is, um, uh, uh, so what I'm going to say um, about where they're at. Uh, Oh yeah. So basically, sometimes where the client's at is where it's really a behavioral intervention they need. I'm not against that. I mean, that's important. In fact, it would be anti-existential humanistic if I go, I'm not going to deal with that behavioral or that anxiety by helping them take a deep breath, or maybe even talk about meditation or whatever. Or, or you know, I'm not going to move into meanings necessarily, or you know, so, and the same thing with cognitive insights. The, the difference is that with, if you just straight cognitive behavioral, um, that it's not in, uh, that in itself could be good. I mean, it, it is good with good practitioners, any modality is good. But the, 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 what makes the existential humanistic uh, unique, I would say, in terms of being a depth psychotherapy, it's an invitation to whatever the modality is in terms of going deeper. Do you really want to explore who you are? And as Maslow would say, the farther reaches of human nature, I think the book is. Um, is so I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, that so there is, I don't know, numbers, but basically the existential humanistic is is um, is not uh, um, is not mainstream, but it's not a fringe and that there's a lot of modalities that have integrated it, whether they know it or not. So, um, you know, and, and also along the line you're talking about is, um, I'm gonna mention existential integrative because that's, uh, Kirk Schneider came up with that, uh, the modality in that. And this fits in with what, what you're talking, what I'm talking about in terms of being a container in terms of, he has six different levels of it, like from, uh, uh, people that need uh, medication are almost like, I haven't thought of this, but Maslow's hierarchy, uh, hierarchy of needs, you know, that. And then basically people that uh, really need cognitive, people that need uh, interpersonal, and then finally people that need kind of the existential meaning making. Um, and uh, so that's another, that's a form. And basically what he's going to be presenting in our conference is existential humanistic and existential integrative. And just to finish my story of the two existential humanistic psychotherapists that most influenced me. Um, yeah, please. So one is my, again, colleague and buddy, Kirk Schneider. Um, and uh, one of the things that he's talked about, which is, again, the positive. Okay, so this is a this positive psychology, which you right. mean about. And so, you know, that's, you know, good stuff, you know, about let's looking part of how the humanist, humanistic uh, existential started is the third force in psychology, 
with a, uh, and the first one was Freud and psychoanalysis, where it's deaf psychotherapy, but it's really tends to look at the uh, uh, the uh, um, the the negative, what do you call it, the character defects or whatever. You know, looks at human beings in a negative light. Philosophically, we need to sublimate our natural kind of sexual and aggressive desires, that sort of thing, uh-huh. and so then focusing on that. Um, behavioral is the second force which is uh, that um, it's not deaf psychotherapy, but it looks at the importance of behavior. And, and, you know, and then how can we change the behavior so your life's more satisfying? And so, um, so existential humanistic. And so uh, psychoanalytic is past-oriented. Uh, behavioral is, in a sense, future-oriented. Existential humanistic both looks at the health of the human being and is present-oriented because it feels everything comes from the present. The past is embedded in the present and the future comes from the present. Um, the other thing is uh, um, with existential humanistic. Oh yeah, and so basically it looks at the health of the individual, you know, starting out where we're healthy and if we're treating the human being, not the someone for personal growth or, uh, or dysfunction or psychopathology. We're treating mm-hmm. the human being and believe if someone's stuck, it's just along the continuum of wherever we're stuck. And the healthiest human being and the most dysfunctional human being are still on that continuum. You know, the argument would be no one's completely dysfunctional unless they're dead. And no one's completely uh, actualized, maybe if you're the Dalai Lama or the Buddha, but I don't think I'll become that till at least five more years from now. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> is... Uh, is um, uh, so uh, I was going to say one other thing about that. Um, oh yeah, back to positive psychology. So basically, one of the things I like about the existential humanistic, and this would be kind of more the existential part, where it's more the head part, is that it, it embraces the totality of existence, which means that I embrace tragedy and joy, you know, and treat those imposters just the same as Reggie Kipling would say. But the, uh, and so basically Frankl's a great example of that. He embraced the tragedy and used it for resilience to move, uh, to help, uh, to heal himself and help the world. Um, on the other, other ways that, uh, you know, people who, um, you know, ha- I can't think of an example, but people who have great joy and it's genuine that's also part of the human existence. So the criticism of positive psychology for me would be it just covers half the equation. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and go back to Kirk, one of the things is he talks about awe-based consciousness, where basically whether again, it's tragedy or joy, we treat life as with awe, with amazement, with wonder, with curiosity, you know, as part of the existential humanistic philosophy. Now, so Kirk's my psychological brother. <laughs> my you EH have this brother. whole psychology family and I'm living for it, honestly. Yes, brother. And, uh, but Jim Bugenthal was my mentor. He, he was my primary mentor and he was my dad. And uh, a, a very special relationship I had with Jim and uh, studied with him from 1991 till in some ways he died in 2007. Um, is... Uh, um, and I actually started working with him when he was 75 and he was always growing, which was cool. He was 75, you know. Um, 
is, um, but, uh, and so Jim also combined the existential and humanistic and looking at both the exploration of being and the, uh, and the valuing of the uniqueness of each human being and, you know, coming from the head and the heart, uh, you know, um, so I won't go more into that other than he was my psychological dad. Um, and uh, he wrote a book that would, that, uh, well, I caught a book, The Art of the Psychotherapist I taught for years, but also he wrote a book, The Search for Existential Identity, which is still the base, best case study book I've ever read. And then the last book he wrote, he's written a number, but was kind of, was funny. He wrote another book, Psychotherapy and Process, but the last book he, he wrote was a double entendre, psychotherapy is not what you think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I want to make another point in terms of process. So one of the things is, as I keep on saying, you know, in some ways, uh, existential music psychotherapy is ahistorical because we're starting in the present moment. And we may move to, we will move to history and we will move to um, the future both, but it starts out being ahistorical. Uh, even though I actually take a, 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 um, a thumbnail sketch of history because also each existential humanist psychotherapist is unique. Really all therapists are, but especially in existential humanistic, I don't work by a formula. So for me, I'm drawn to for different reasons to do and give the client a choice. But once that's done, and, and some people, Jim would do, you don't even start out with that. You totally let it unfold. You're starting in the moment and seeing what unfolds. So that's, that's what it means to be ahistorical. Um, and, in that, and it's atheoretical in terms of about content, about where you should go. Now, what it is, and I guess it's, is it's process oriented. So that's what it's focused on. In other words, I'm interested in the way, the way of being of a person because that's often semi or unconscious and that moves into the authentic existential identity. Um, and uh, well, what's not authentic in terms of existential identity. And so there's two ways in terms of working with process. One is the uh, relationship of the, of the uh, client to themselves and um, and so one of the ways, and this is what Jim was a master of, what he called inward searching is when I'm working with a client, um, you know, clients will say, what do you think? Well, what do you think? <laughs> you think I know better about you than you do? <laughs> yeah, uh, they want kind of like that affirmation or that compass of like, okay, so I should be doing this. Yeah, and that's certainly in guiding, I'm there in that way. But right. basically, uh, exactly, in our culture, it's fairly hier hierarchical, fairly medical which the EH model isn't. So clients from a dramatic to a subtle level is, well, I'm paying you for give me the answers, and, <laughs> right? I mean, really. Um, yeah. And, and in a sense, you know, I'm saying directly or indirectly um, that you're paying me to support you in the search for your answers in two different ways. And that's what the process is about. And so mm -hmm. basically you end up feeling the master of your life, not that I'm the master of your life. Um, <laughs> even though I, I would like world domination, but I, I keep those urges away. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is, um, uh, so in terms of the intrapsychic, it's basically where I'm throwing the client onto themselves. So basically it would be, um, well, I, I'm concerned about my relationship with my partner and I'm not sure what I should do, you know? And okay, well, just stay with it. 
take your time, take a breath and see what emerges right now with the sense of discovery. So that would be the intrapsychic process. Um, and the other would be reflecting how that intrapsychic process is, uh, they've learned to interrupt it to be safe, which isn't a negative thing. We all need to be safe. So it, it's interesting is, uh, okay, well, tell me about, you know, your struggles with your partner. Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And it would be like, maybe I'll reflect that back or, you know, um, anyway, I could be interchangeable if it's maybe with anybody, right? So that would be an example of seeing how they, their way of being that they may not completely be aware of. So then they have the choice to fill it back. And if I didn't say maybe, what's really here right now? Um, and, and so that empowers the individual and the process continuing in, a, in an authentic, more empowered way. So the other is interpersonal process. An interpersonal process is my relationship with the other in individual therapy with the other person and couples, the primary is them with each other. Um, but uh, an individual uh, looking at that would be that I'm, uh, you know, well, in my relationship, I struggle with um, that I'm really kind of shy and I don't assert myself enough. Um, so the intermersal would be is, well, how is that in our relationship? When does the shyness come up? When, when would you like to be assertive with me that you aren't, you know? So, and um, so those are two flip sides of the same coin of two aspects of intimacy, which is part of what we're looking for to live a more fulfilled life. Um, and uh, um, so, uh, and Irv Yalom is the, ma the master of that. So, and basically existential humanistic to me, and interesting, um, even though I say Jim is existential human, well, I'll put it a different way. Um, uh, um, well, just um, uh, that basically as an existential humanistic psychotherapist through my lens, at least, I wanna do as much to hold both, you know, the intrapsychic and the interpersonal and be aware of what does this client need right now, do I think? whether it's in the session or over a period of sessions, because it will change over time if, if the therapy is successful. And also where are my blind spots? Do I tend to be more intrapsychic and it's more, uh, I uh, space out the interpersonal and vice versa. So to me, this is a key lens of how to do existential, how to provide existential mystic psychotherapy that I'm up on getting across in terms of the application of it, of the philosophy. No, that's, Thank you so much for like covering that. Um, it's a all of all of this conversation has been like a really incredible back um, you know background information for like me. I know there's like a couple of names that I'm gonna have to like go and research more because I wasn't familiar with them. Um, and then also for the listeners, it really really was like a big picture. I I do want to like point out and um, like thank you for like talking about um, your like like lineage um, in this. I feel like that's something that doesn't get discussed um, within academia enough of like, right, we all come from people that came before us and it's important to like acknowledge that and understand that even, right, even if they're not directly related to us, they're still part of Absolutely. our human oh, yeah. family. Um, and then, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and then just uh, the way that you pointed out um, that the pairing of existential and humanistic psychology together really encompasses that it, it, it works to like break that myth of like the mind-body disconnect um, in a way, I think, right, where we want to like silo, you know, every single like field that we have of the human experience um, 
they really they really work to to blend them all back together as, as they actually are. So I thank you so much for for covering all of that. You're welcome. Um, Can I say some things before you go on? By all means, go for it. You evoke some things in me. First of all, one of the things I love about this philosophy is it's very holistic. In other words, it's like I I don't want to be reduced to anything, even though everything can be helpful. So say neurobiology has great stuff, but I don't want to make the human being a function of neurobiology. I don't even want to make the function of the human being some sort of a paradigm where I have to make them a function of existential humanistic philosophy and psychotherapy. The whole is greater than the parts. So you evoke that in me. Um, and in that, again, it's so inclusive. So when you were talking about, uh, you know, the lineage, is that basically, it's is, is that also the belief that not only that I'm connected with the past and the future, and I'm connected with and I'm also connected, which I didn't like eco-psychology. I'm connected with nature. I'm connected with spirit. I'm connected with, you know, um, and I'm probably doing too much, but I'll say this. In the German words, there's Eigenwelt, Mitwelt, Umwelt, and Uberwelt, which is part, what is ideally covered in the full course of psychotherapy or even in, in uh, different sessions. But um, Eigenwelt is relationship with self. So that, you know, that's the intrapsychic. Um, is uh, Mitwelt is the relationship to others, um, which is the interpersonal. Um, umwelt is the relationship to society at large. And one of the dark, uh, shadow sides of the Western psychology is this individualistic, rugged individualism. Pardon my language, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> It's fair. It's fair. Uh, um, and so that was a completely welcome perspective on this podcast. <laughs> I would just like to affirm that. Is um so Mitt, so Eigenwelt and Mitwelt are always in the room because he's interrelated. So that's the exciting thing about it. It's always there. It's always this incredible richness. I, I that I don't have to look outside of the room. Um that uh but uh Mitwelt. I mean, uh, umwelt is my relationship to society and my relationship to uh, nature can go in either one, but it could be nature um, in terms of uh, uberwelt too. But um, so basically it's not me disowning say, cause I saw that as one of your questions about the, uh, about being in society and how does it help in terms of, you know, all the things we're going through. That's incredibly important because we're interconnected with everything. So that basically is another thing to be aware of that. I, my ideal would be that everyone on some level when they're done with the full course of existential psychotherapy becomes and feels that they're a change agent in the world. And that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, it could be subtle, but that that's a real part of their consciousness. And uh, Uberwelt is the relationship to uh, what's, what's greater than ourselves. So it's greater than our ego. So, uh, and it, nature could be in that one too. But, um, and so it could be, uh, you know, spiritness, the mystery of life. It could be, you know, God, higher power, you, you know. So that's also an important thing that I'm aware of. So the, um, so a full course of psychotherapy, all that is 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 explored. And then again, it's free will and agency of how 
uh, within our destiny and within our limits of each individual chooses what they want. But um, so umwelt and uberwelt isn't as much in the room. And for me as an existential psychotherapist, I want to be aware of how I incorporate that or how the client is incorporating that and I shine a light on them. Um, so, uh, and again, eigenwelt and mitwelt is always in the room, which makes the therapy so rich. Um, so yeah, Are you were gonna say something else, Quinn? Oh, I, um you provided the perfect segue to jump into that um, kind of deeper like application question that I have for you. But um, one I just want to throw out, thank you for bringing up eco-psychology. Um, that is one of my niche loves uh, that I absolutely adore. Um, so shout out to eco-psychology. But um, yeah, that, that question that you were like referencing around um, like society and the time that we have now, uh, well, that we're in currently, um, now that we have that background um, and understanding of what existential humanistic is, um, kind of jumping into that deeper question, uh, I'd say since this uh, podcast is centered around, you know, students and trying to provide, you know, different explorations of health and wellness um, for our campus community, um, focusing on higher education, um, what are the hopes and goals of higher education, you know, besides giving the individual the ability to make better futures for themselves, is to give them access to knowledge to become helpers and leaders within their communities and to continue to make a better future for humanity as a whole. Um, with all of the troubles facing us all right now, like the deadly pandemic, the effects and reality of climate change, the culmination of hundreds of years of settler colonialism and racial inequality, um, the healthcare disparities, and you know, we could unfortunately go on for a really long time. Uh, it, it can feel incredibly hard to look optimistically to the idea of a better future. Um, what can existential humanistic psychology lend to us to help us cope with facing these unknown futures ahead? Okay, I can answer that in a few different ways. One is, again, this is where it's existential hyphen humanistic. Um, existential is more of, um, is more of uh, the importance of, of, of agency and choice. So existential philosophy would be, yeah, maybe, maybe we will self-destruct you know, um, and, uh, but almost so what? And then that's a what in terms of who cares, but so what in terms of the choice I have is what can I do to be part of the solution? You know, so that's how that's dealt with. Um, the humanistic, as I said before, is a very helpful philosophy that basically says, we're always growing towards health and wholeness. And one of the things to, and so, um, how can we, how can, and also in a more proactive way, how can we support the people facing their wounds, um, moving to see what it is um, that keeps them from peeling back their protections, facing their wounds, dealing with their fears, and the belief that then um, things can be changed. So, so with existential would be, I'll just pick one because there's so many, and I certainly hope that the uh, I, I'm a blogger for psychology today um, that I've been for about 10 years, um, which is which is, which is a forum I use to hopefully help people. And uh, one of my recent blogs, uh, I guess I'll put a, if people want to read them, you can go to uh, my website, bobedelstein.com. And on the homepage, it says, uh, I'm a contributor to psychology today. My, uh, it's under the therapy section and it's, uh, my title is Authentic Engagement, a Radical Way of Being. 
And so one of my recent blogs, not the last blog, one of my recent blogs was, uh, um, uh, I'm losing it. What were you saying? It had to do with the blog I wrote. Um, is, oh yeah, that basically I look, uh, um, I look at uh, that the uh, the way to look at the humanistic part and looking at like uh, well if, um, like Frankel did with the concentration camps again these merge existential humanistic but would be what good can come out of something of whatever you know and so to me I'm I look at uh, I'm hoping this is a wake up call and like an important wake up call to deal with systemically. Uh, all the things you're talking about. And um, and uh, so wonderful things can come out of it. And and some already are. And you also have the destructive part too that's we're seeing also. So basically the existential part, I think would say, let's look at this exploration of being of, of just without a value which way they go. And of course, I hope that we go positive, but maybe not. But again, as I said, but what what's the alternative? Just die now before you start. Um, and the humanistic would say, you know, this is great because we can, th this is, I believe what's happening, that this is a wake up call and we will move towards health and wholeness systemically and already have and really focus on that. It would be, you know, the positive psychology aspect of humanistic psychology. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, does that answer it, Quinn? I'm not sure. Oh, I know, I was gonna do one other thing too. And one of the ways to make this happen um, is that, uh, and now I go back to Carl Rogers in the book I read on freedom to learn, because he does, and there's a lot more things now, this is where it gets integrated, because I think there was, there's all sorts of things now, or I don't know how popular they are these days, but like student-centered, like uh, parent, child-centered education or this or that, but at any rate, um, or, as I said, Carl Rogers person-centered. So when I read Freedom to Learn, what he does is makes it student-centered. So basically it's the belief of what my job would be is if I, uh, is to organize people who have some energy uh, to look at, well, how can I change? How can I make change in this world? Um, and then, um, let it come from organically. Like I would be the facilitator and just believe that uh, individuals given that permission will come up with incredible solutions. And the group as a whole will come up with incredible solutions in that dialogue. And I'm giving the space to really make that, ha to make that happen. Um, so that would be one way that you don't get overwhelmed is that one doesn't get overwhelmed. Well, how can I do that? And that would be just like what you're doing with the podcast. It's the belief that everything helps, that, that at least I'm doing my part. But humanistically, again, that would be very consciously looking at, let's dialogue, let's dialogue, let's dialogue and see what we can come up with that's creative because there's this concern, there's this energy of life matters, this world matters. And there's things that are, that, we can really move into on all these systems. So let's see how we can make some progress in it. I agree with Biden. Well, maybe it's a little different, but that we're fighting for the soul of the nation. So anyway, uh, so anyway, I hope that helps. Absolutely. Thank you for 
for that and applying those lenses to our, you know, future um, outlooks and perspectives. Um, we've been talking a lot about finding. You mentioned the so what aspect of existential psychology, not in the negative way, but in the way of like, what are you going to do about it? Um, and this is more so calling on your practitioner experience, but I was wondering if you could kind of give some actionable suggestions to listeners on how can they try and find meaning or purpose or, you know, I think that a lot of times people think that finding meaning or purpose means that they need to silver line their situation. And I've found that that's really not the case at all. You kind of like still just need to approach whatever's going on and then still find a purpose that can change and fluctuate with how you're changing through life. Um, so yeah, if you have any suggestions for how somebody could start on that journey of finding that meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll talk about as a, how I help someone as a therapist do that as an existentialist psychotherapist. Yeah. Or like what piece of advice you would give to a hypothetical client regarding yeah. that. Mm -hmm. uh, is and you know advice isn't such a good word in existential humanistic psychotherapy is uh that's and pretty not good to I, know <laughs> not, not that i won't but yeah because you know the whole thing is for the self-discovery of the client and who they are uh that the belief that they can discover with it as well as the belief that they dis can discover things about themselves in between and that's, that's a great point and that's kind of why you said earlier Guide. So thank you for pointing that terminology exactly. out. And that's where the empathy and uh, unconditional positive regard come. That's where the empathy comes. The unconditional positive regard reinforces it, or maybe it starts it out, because how can I discover who I am if I'm, I don't feel the sacredness or the validation of the therapist? And the congruence part, though, is also important, because basically, uh, I'm a real human being in this equation. And, and that can help the person. So that's where advice could come in, but I don't want to overuse it. And also I want to share coming from my experience rather than advice of, well, this is what I think you should do. You know, I definitely know this helps. I could say, you know, I think this helps. This works for me. I think meditation is pretty valuable, but that, you know, you can try it and see if it works enough for you. Um, so advice isn't something I use much or I'm drawn to even though I do give it sometimes, um, is uh, so what I would do to help find meaning. First of all, I want to give <laughs> another plug to myself and my work is so for the handbook of, uh, so in the second edition of the handbook of humanistic psychology, I have a chapter in it and it's called frames, attitudes, and skills of an existential humanistic therapist. And basically what I was interested in is, um, is I was at a conference in 2009, an existential humanistic conference. And there were newer, and one of the, um, one of the things that was done was there were some breakout groups in terms of questions about existential humanistic uh, uh, therapy, psychotherapy. And so I was in one group about how do you get the word out about it? And there were about 10 of us and about five were more experienced therapists and about five were more beginning therapists or students. 
And it really discouraged me that the student said, because this was a conference with people from around the country. It was in San Francisco, but you'd have people from around the country come. And so one of the people, uh, one of the students tended to say, you know, I really love this uh, type of philosophy in psychotherapy, but that the people where I am, the other therapists say, yeah, it's okay you do it, but don't tell anybody because uh, a number of things. One is there was one is it's too gloomy. I forget what the second thing was, um, uh, but it's not. Uh, but basically, that it, you're just flying by the seat of your pants. It's not evidence based enough. And um, and in Trousseau, you know, or your listeners know, Bruce Wampold, the respected research researcher, um, studied. Uh, Exist actually it was existential psychology, and he came out with his studies uh, that were uh, um, quantitative. I don't know how he did it, but um, but basically that said, uh, unlike the research where it would say, well, say the cognitive behavioral that ninety percent. I don't know. I'm making it up. Ninety percent of changes from the cognitive behavioral techniques. Um, he's in his research. He said um, there were three things that were the, that techniques were about ten percent. He said that the other ninety percent was a combination of uh, the relationship between therapist and client, the presence of the therapist, and contextual factors, which is what you come in with. What the what's the context? And so it is evidence based. So a lot of people don't know that. <coughs> um, and. Uh, but I was interested in getting across that would that in a sense, it's not by the seat of our pants as I'm relying on my intuition. Um, and so if you call that by the seat of the pants, which I don't because intuition is deeper wisdom, basically, that I'm, I'm operating in terms of my wholeness. But how does what's what informs me of my intuition? And in terms of the existential humanistic uh, philosophy, psychotherapy. And I came up with six philosophical frames, six relationship attitudes, and six therapeutic skills. And so it's in that chapter in the handbook of humanistic psychology. But I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm saying that because I am interested in that I, I'm helping the person discover their own meaning. I think it's going to happen naturally, organically. So these are some of the examples of what I would, what helps me to do that is uh, a, a therapeutic uh, uh, skill would be deep listening. In other words, if I'm really listening, deep listening is this, I really have a sense of, to the best of my ability, what this client human being is saying in the moment and a sense of what will unfold in the short term or long term and what their uh, uh, unmet needs are or unconscious feelings or unstated feelings. And um, so deep listening, if that really gets addressed, um, then a person is going to move naturally to making meaning. And that would be more of a receptive way of doing it. Um, I can also look at uh, existential themes that we can explore. So an existential theme is one themes of existence that we all have. And the themes can be affirming like uh, um, uh, a sense of, uh, I feel competent in what I do as a theme that say that's, th this isn't true for me, but as a theme that runs through one's life, you know, it's almost starting, that's real and genuine from, from you know, adolescence or whatever. Um, but that 
by its name. So that's actually pointed out, but by its nature, because you come in with concerns that you're going to deal with existential themes that inhibit you. So an existential theme that, well, two cultural existential themes in just about everyone in, in, uh, in our country is um, I'm not enough and I'm not lovable, you know? So, so that will come out, but within each, both the universal existential themes with Yalom as, a, as one paradigm, uh, Jim Bujan has another paradigm, and with, uh, and with the cultural existential themes, uh, two being I believe I'm not enough and I'm not lovable, what's important is it moves into the unique personal existential themes. Um, and uh, so basically, in covering the existential themes of, say, I'm not enough, by exploring that, um, and a person then peels back and looks at the wound that I'm not enough and really sees that they are enough, even if they are, uh, even if the therapy is successful, even if they're vulnerable sometimes to see ways that, you know, that's not their expertise or whatever. And uh, these themes never go away, but there's a lot more uh, space around them. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't define us uh, nearly as much that then one's going to naturally move towards meaning. Again, I'm on the humanistic end now, but so, uh, and then th that's an example of, uh, and the exploring existential themes or existential themes would be uh, a therapeutic, uh, a philosophical frame. Uh, and a relationship attitude would be something like the I-thou relationship, which is a more receptive, but another uh, uh, relationship attitude would be, um, uh, it, uh, interaction uh, being more of an emphasis over action. So in other words, <laughs> I want to be as responsible as I can or, you know, not overthink it, but, you know, certainly I'm not being glib about how I intervene or what I say, but then say I missed the client. Um, so, um, so then I see that non-verbally or verbally, or if the relationship's developed enough, the client may say something. Um, and then it's like, that's wonderful because then I'm moving through my own human vulnerable process. So the person feels heard and seen and our relationship can get closer. Um, so that would be an example. And then meaning gets changed because my authentic existential identity shifts. So let me say a few words about that and how that change takes place is so, as I said, we need to have identities to get through the world. There's self and world constructs, um, how I define myself and how I define my world. And so that includes, incorporates all of who we are from the ones, as I said, that uh, self-constructs and identities that really serve us to self to part of the self and world constructs that really inhibit our fuller living. So then when I'm coming with my, and so uh, that kind of, if, if not, um, uh, life would be too anxiety and terrifying. You need that for some, both not only optimal living, but for a sense of safety. I need to define, I need to have some sort of definition of myself, even if it sounds crazy because it's, it doesn't, it's not a very healthy self-definition, but it's based on my life experiences, my interpretation of it. So, uh, so then, um, uh, so then a person's talking about their concern. I'll use that example about a partner and, uh, and in the, and in their uh, in their thing, I, I'm not enough for my partner. Uh, and then in in the self discovery process, in a very genuine uh, in the moment experience, it was like, wow, I really undersold myself in that. I would just blame myself and put it all on me. 
when, and not making an anti the partner, it could be, but that's not my point, um, is that basically, wow, how I thought about myself isn't so true. At least it's not so true. Maybe it was never true, but it's not true in who I am now. So then there's a clash between the existential identity I've been sitting with and how that's not really the full true meaning of my authentic existential identity. And then uh, that's the ongoing process. And it, the, it could be a very scary time because in that there's an, it can be an existential crisis. Well, this is, a, is just seeing something's not, sometimes it's seeing something's not true, but I'm not tr sure what's gonna fill that void. And that's where the existential mistake really needs to hold the client during that time period. Um, so all that leads to finding meaning. But for me, I usually don't directly say, well, what's the meaning of your life? It can become too cognitive for me. Yeah, I think that just approaching somebody with that <laughs> strong of a question, that's going to lead to like overthinking and not fully accepting like, oneself in the present moment. Right. It's going to be very, you've been saying the phrase like anti-humanistic or anti-existential, like it would be very much so both of those things yeah. to just be like, all right, give me a single worded sentence, you know? Yeah. Or even, uh, even further is, listen, I'll tell you what your meaning in life should be. <laughs> Yeah, very true. It yeah, it's like, this is your purpose now, accept <laughs> that. It's like, no, nope, that's the opposite of what we're going for here. And also what you say, I want to say that in terms of, you know, too much thinking to be in the head is what I'm looking in terms of inner and insights are good, but ultimately I want it, it can be like a roadmap, but I want to move to my inner experience and my inner vision. So basically, what does that mean? I've saying, been saying before that uh, to repeat is it means what is my... Uh, um, what goes on internally in terms of what am I feeling right now at this moment? What, what is my uh, thought? So thoughts can be inward, not just here, but it comes from, it comes from internally. So, oh yeah, this, because that can be an aha experience. Oh yeah, I thought I wasn't enough. I am enough when I'm looking at it right now. So uh, feelings and thoughts are combined. So I don't want to make it like thoughts are bad and not part of inner experience. It's just often thoughts are not part of inner experience because it's what's on tape and what it, it, it becomes the identity that, oh, this is who I am, end of story. Um, and also part of that inner experience is also bodily sensations and that mind-body connection. And so at any rate, so uh, the inner life is what you start out with. And then once there's a congruency there, it kind of, kind of naturally moves out to the world because there's a natural desire to actualize. And then when you get, if, if one gets stuck in actualization, you just move it back to the inner world and subject to again, well, why am I stuck right now? Why isn't it happening? And then that can move into a self-discovery of this isn't really what I wanted to do or, oh yeah, I'm afraid of both being too boastful about myself. So it's a dance between the two. Thank you so much for all of your like words and insights um, and taking this time to dialogue all of this with us. It has been absolutely incredible. Um, so, so thank you again. Um, and just to give you some space to, to shout out, um, you know, the work that um, Existential Humanistic Northwest is doing um, and any other projects that you're involved in, like, like please, um, take this time to, to shout all of that out. Um, and if there's any other like words that you wanna say, like it's your time to shine. Okay, <laughs> thanks Quinn. Um, is yeah, I wanna talk about the Existential Northwest Professional Organization. So, um, and I'll give you a little history myself. So 
uh, I was part of the Existential Humanistic Institute. And I was on the board in San Francisco from like 2008 to 2012. And, um, and basically that was an organization, uh, it was more, I would say, academic student oriented in terms of master's PhDs, but it certainly went to the professional community too. Um, in, in, uh, and that was formed by my mentor, Jim Bugenthal. And also Kirk Schneider was on the original board and other close colleagues of mine who studied with Jim Bugenthal. Um, and, uh, and it was to promote the existential humanist perspective. And so uh, there's a whole training curriculum program that you can get cert certification. There's uh, uh, different, you know, uh, annual, there's, uh, I don't know if it's annual, but there's conferences and things like that. So when I had been there, uh, for a couple of years, and I had been doing exist, I still do existential humanist training case consultation groups uh, for professionals, interns, sometimes students, but it's usually mostly interns and professionals uh, who, from beginning to advanced experience. Um, that they were asking, how can we connect with other people outside of our group? And so, between those two influences, I decided to put out an email um, to about, oh, I don't know, maybe 80 people I knew and said, would you like to come to an initial meeting and seeing if this can come about? And so maybe about 40 showed up and then, and basically we said, yeah. And, and the first year, uh, um, and then it went down next people say about 25 or whatever. And it eventually came down to like uh, 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 a dozen people. Um, and that became the board. And basically, a lot of the first year, uh, we focused on the vision and mission statements because that is the kind of cornerstone and foundation of where the activities emerge from. Uh, again, existential music is fairly philosophical. And in a, I want my heart to come from my head. You know, it's it's it's, uh, and I want my head to come from my heart. <laughs> And so basically to start with the philosophical core, what we came up with is existential humanist Northwest is here to impact the world through our commitment to and passion for existential humanistic values of authenticity, integrity, responsibility, interconnectedness, inclusion, and awe. Um, and our mission statement, is, what we came up with in that first year was EHNW enlivens and enriches human experience through our commitment to being present with ourselves, others, society, and the mystery of life. We serve the healing professions, our clients, and the public through dialogue, education, training, and advocacy. So that is, and so then when it comes into what we have to offer in our involvement is uh, we, from the beginning, offer uh, lunch and learns, uh, uh, every other month, so six a year um, from, uh, and what it is is, uh, and uh, anyone can come. Uh, it, we have an affiliate package where you get benefits as well as supporting the perspective in the organization. So if you're on the affiliate package, it doesn't cost anything. Otherwise it costs $10. And uh, it's a half an hour of networking in saying who you are uh, professionally. Um, and, uh, and then there's an hour of someone talking about something that is related to the EH perspective, you know? So we had last lunch and learn uh, 
was uh, last Friday. Um, and it was, it's the second Friday of each month, like from one to 2.30. So there's an hour where a person talks about what the topic is and then takes Q&A and, you know, and so this was on uh, the influence of archetypes and its relationship to EH psychotherapy. Oh, you were there, Queen. Uh, yeah, I did have the honor of showing up for that. It was um, absolutely wonderful. Beth, um, yeah, was that's great. Right. And it yeah. was it was wonderful. Yeah, um, a super cool opportunity, especially that y'all let us students get involved. So thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> You're welcome. And students are definitely involved. Uh, welcome, and and we have students involved, um, including we have a couple of students on our board. We have twelve members from the board, and at least they start out that way. They both graduated now and are interns, but one got the master's at PSU and one at Lewis and Clark. So, um, and uh, um, so let's see. Uh, oh, and then the other thing, another thing we do is we do four salons a year. And oh yeah, so the, the lunch and learn is on Friday from one to two thirty. The salons are Saturday mornings, uh, four times during the year. And they're on uh, like from 10 to 12. And uh, that's, Again, nothing if you're an affiliate and uh, uh, 15 if you're a student, 20 if you're a professional. Um, is, uh, and that is having a, that's a kind of very humanistic, it's a relaxed dialogue of anyone who wants to show up. And so we've had, and we pick a professional topic and there's two co-facilitators from the EHNW board. And uh, one may talk about, 10 minutes, 15 at most, uh, something about topic, but it's really people saying what they want and basically, uh, oh, people introducing themselves and then people saying what, whatever it is. So for instance, oh, and so there's a professional salon. Interestingly enough, the last one we did, there'll be another one coming up in, uh, in uh, May, but was on uh, 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 existential psychotherapy. I forget the title, but it was an, on meaning making. So just what you're talking about, or it was literally someone from our board is certified and and close to Alfred Langle, who I just spoke to. So he knows a lot about the logo therapy and existential analysis. But it's just open up to wherever people want to talk. There's also a student salon, and students can come to the professional. The professional come to the students. But there's a student salon in November. There's a case actually. There's a uh, a reading salon, you know, in, in uh, July, uh, uh, a book salon. Um, and there is um, this uh, Saturday, rather, March 6th, there's going to be an, a, a case consultation salon, which is case conceptualization, consultation, discussion from an existentialist perspective. And I'll talk about 10 minutes about how I see conceptualization from this perspective and consultation. And then you, we, people present cases who want to and, and we go from there and then talk about at the end, uh, you know, just as a group at the end in terms of how it was. So you're welcome to do that as well as any of the students. And this is all by Zoom now because of the pandemic. But since you're from Portland, it's in person, you could come when it's in person because on the Zoom we'll have national, international people coming, which is exciting. Um, but uh, so you go to ehnwpdx.org and, uh, uh, and you can see what we have to offer. And also absolutely one of the people who did the website who's amazing, uh, both as an extension of a psychotherapist 
and uh, in his tech is a new, um, oh, I'm sorry, at Lewis and Clark, but his name's Justin Rock. So, um, but at any rate, uh, is, um, uh, and also you can sign up for the Friends of EHNW newsletter, uh, or which is free and about bi-monthly or whatever it is, you get announcements of the upcoming events and you just sign up with your name and email. The last thing that we, uh, we have a blog that if you're an affiliate, you can blog, blog but we have a blogger anyway that uh, has a blog on all the events at the least after it's done. But the, the other big thing, so we've done an annual workshop every year. And this is the first year we're doing a conference. And again, it's going to be a podcast because not a podcast, it's going to be Zoom. Zoom. Um, you got me all confused here. Is, <laughs> is, so the conference is really exciting. It's called Four Masters, Four Approaches and Exploration of Existential Theory and Practice, which I think I was saying earlier in the podcast, but it's the four major people of the four major modalities of existential psychotherapy. And I think it's going to be incredibly exciting. They're each going to uh, uh, have a workshop for three hours each, where half of it is on the theory, and half of it is is going to be a volunteer they'll be working with and debriefing. And then the last day will be a two-hour uh, panel with all four of them, which I'll be moderating. So, um, and again, this is for students as well as from students to advanced professionals. So that's that honestly sounds like such a special opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the HNW. I also uh, want to talk about myself and, and as you say, some of my projects, as I said before, I'm a blogger for psychology today. So feel free to check out my blogs. Um, and also there's a lot of great blogs in psychology. You can check all the sections, um, but it's, uh, as I said, you go to my website. Another way to get there is, uh, you can go to Psychology Today, check experts, and then check my, see my name, click that, or go to the latest block. And if you want to see past blogs, you know, you just scroll back. Um, and uh, and then I do different workshops at different times. Um, I don't have anyone right now, but uh, if you want, if you can, um, again, my web, website is uh, bobedelstein.com. But if you want me to put you on the waiting list, um, email me because I don't have. I need to update my website. Um, but uh, maybe one of you two will do it. I'm kind of like uh, for the dummies technology. Um, <laughs> I'm the worst millennial. <laughs> it is kind of iconic. Quinn is quite the anti-tech person, except when it comes to podcasting. Quinn is the king when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> any rate, uh, so any rate, the best thing is to email me if you want me to be on the on the professional list, which is um, Bob at BobEdelstein.com. Which, I mean, we'll have your website yeah, and your email right. and all that in the podcast description if anybody is looking for it. And uh, yeah, you're welcome. Also, if you want to call me, it's 503-249-2759 at this point. Uh, is, uh, and then the last thing I'll say is the two books I, on the website is a bibliography. It's just really, you know, it's, it's a very generic one. So, but you, you're welcome to look at read stuff on that bibliography. And as I didn't in this podcast, I've left out people from the lineage and people from the present day. 
So I apologize to all the people who are looking at on me that I didn't include them. <laughs> it's an official apology. Um, so, <laughs> so I mentioned I was in the handbook. So this is it, the handbook of humanistic psychology theory, research and practice. That second edition, that's the one where I have my chapter on frames, attitudes, and skills of an existential humanistic therapist. So you'll have that on your um, website. Is that it? Um, what podcast? We'll have it in the podcast. So whether you're Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, just go okay. down, check in the description. We'll have all that linked up right for you. Okay. And then the other one is that puts about, that uh, describes in depth the four presenters. Uh, they uh, is another edited book that they edited uh, called uh, that talks about the different modalities in in very thorough form from case study to theory etc is called the wiley world handbook of existential therapy and the editor-in-chief is emmy van dorsen who's going to be one of the presenters in september so uh is um I think that's it. I would say this has been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much for having me and uh, the fun we had and the engagement we had in this podcast. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I've honestly learned so much. This felt far less like doing work for once. This felt like, I don't know, just being sitting here fully engaged, just getting to nerd out about the thing that I love. So thank you genuinely. Yeah, I like that you put on the new, I don't know, I thought it was funny that you put on that you two are psychological nerds. <laughs> we really are. We've been like wanting to do this podcast for, I think, about a year now, right, Quinn? Oh, that's, been talking about. that's a great service you do. Is um, if you two are psychology nerds, may the world be inhabited by psychology nerds, I say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I take that compliment. Look, I'm always willing to be the nerd that's, I, people can call me a nerd. Let me be happy. Let me be my authentic <laughs> self as we've learned. Right. And I will flourish. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much again, Bob, for being with us. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, and again, links to everything in the description below. Take care, listeners. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the What's Up podcast. We'll catch up with you on our next episode, which will be posted every Friday this term. While PSU has gone remote for the time being, we wanted to let you know that Shaq is still here for you. We are fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students. Please call ahead to use our health services for flu shots, free COVID testing, or general appointments at 503 503- 725-2800. Counseling services are still available via telehealth and you can schedule your appointments by calling that same number 503-725-2800. If you are looking for more health and wellness resources, you can check out our online health magazine that gets sent to your pdx.edu email every Wednesday or you can download the Campus Well app. You can also check out the virtual MindSpa experience to rest, relax, and rejuvenate wherever you have internet access. We will be including website links in the episode description. We also have a Google form that you can complete with any questions about health, shack, or anything we discuss in the podcast. 
you can find the link in the episode description. Thanks for listening and take care.